Well, we've been in 1 Peter, so we're gonna like go from near the end of the Bible to back to the beginning of the Bible. We started this series back in January and we covered all of 11 chapters in five months. And I promised to get through all of the remaining chapters, 12 through 50, in the next about 12 weeks. Should be no problem. But, but uh, we've seen so far that Genesis provides answers to some of our deepest longings and deepest questions that we have. Things like, where did this world come from? Where did all of this stuff come from? And what we discover is that there is a God who, who speaks the world into existence. And we've, the other question is like, what am I created for? Like, what am I made to do? And when we look in the early passages of, of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve were designed to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate the good world that God has made. We ask other questions like, where did marriage originate? And we see that God said it isn't good for mankind to be alone. So he instituted marriage. And ask other questions like, why is something deep inside of me drawn towards beauty, towards truth, and towards goodness, right? Something deep inside of us loves looking at mountains, loves um, the ocean. Good music. Why are we drawn towards them? Well, we're created in the image of a God who is good and beautiful and true. Maybe some more challenging questions like, why is there so much pain in this world? And we look at Genesis 3 and we realize that mankind sinned against God. And that's why there's so much in this world. Like, why is there conflict in my marriage and in my friendships and in some family members? And we see that, well, that sin pervades every relationship and it even pervades systems and governments and leaders. But today we're going to answer one of those other big questions. And the big question is this. If there is a God, and I believe there is, and I think you do too, or you wouldn't be here this morning, or maybe you're questioning and that's fine, but if there's a God, how do we relate to him? Like if there's this God that speaks the universe into existence, stars, planets, if he just says stuff and worlds happen, how do I relate to him? And how am I to live with him in this relationship? And what we're gonna see in our passage this morning is that the God who calls us at the beginning is the God who carries us to the end. We're doing a 30,000 foot flyover of Genesis 12, 15, and 17 today. So instead of reading all of these chapters, which would take about 30 minutes in and of itself, we're gonna read selections from each chapter that'll correspond with the points of my sermon. So the first point is the God who calls. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn it to Genesis chapter 12. We're gonna read verses one through nine together. This is what it says. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, 
all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. How many of you have been to like a career day where you, or like a job fair of sorts where you kind of walk into a room and you see booth after booth of people set up for jobs and in uh, what you do is you kind of explore different, you stop at different booths of people hiring and kind of ex- see what kind of benefits you could arrange for yourself, what they offer you, and maybe you can walk out of that room with an interview for a job or something like that. Well, much like a job fair in, in the ancient Near East in the time of Abram, there were a lot of gods, and people tried to worship a lot of gods and tried to receive a lot of benefits from them. They would have this god of fertility over here who would offer them, who would offer them something. There was, there was the god of the sun over, over here, and they would try to like negotiate with these gods so that they, these gods would bless them. They would do the rain god because there was a crop-growing society, so they wanted rain so they could grow their crops. And this is a, this is a terribly sad way to live, right? Listen to this This is an old Assyrian prayer from the 7th century BC called the prayer to every God. Here's a a clip. The sin which I've committed, I don't know, I know not. The iniquity which I have done, I know not. The God in the wrath of his heart hath visited me. The goddess has become angry with me and hath grievously stricken me. The known or unknown God hath straightened me. The known or unknown goddess has brought affliction upon me. It's sad, right? Here's this person worshiping many gods, and he's like, I don't know which God I have offended, but he is upset with me. I don't know, maybe I don't even know what this God is, but but he's mad, and I can't even relate to him. I can't even fix what's broken. And some of us we kind of relate to God this way, too. Some of us treat God like a career fair, right? We kind of pick the God that seems to offer the most benefits, right? But some of us, we treat like everything that happens in the world, like God is out to get us, and we're not sure why. But I want you to notice something about the way the God of the Bible works, And that is, God calls Abram. He reveals himself to him. He makes himself known. And he makes himself clear to him. God comes to Abram and calls him to himself. You see, Abram was a nobody. He existed in the backwoods place of Ur. No one would have known when he knew who he was, but God revealed himself to him out of his grace and his mercy. There was nothing in Abram that made him worthy of God's attention. 
But this relational God shows up and he begins the relationship with Abram. And Abram at the time would have likely been a moon worshiper. That's what the region he lived in was known for. And worshiping the moon or whatever god or goddesses that showed up. But God shows up and interrupts his life and reveals to him who he is. And this is the beginning of where we're gonna start to understand about relating to God. If we're gonna relate to God, we're gonna have to understand that God is the one who starts and initiates the relationship. He doesn't leave himself as unknown. He makes himself known and reveals himself to us when we're far from him. He is the initiator of a relationship. He did it with Abram, and he does it today. And what God did is he called Abram into a relationship with him. He called Abram to worship him. And he called Abraham to leave everything and to follow him to Egypt. Now, you shouldn't make light of what a big deal this would have been. God says in verse one of that passage, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram would have to leave his place of security, where he got all his food, where he made his livelihood. He would have had to leave his family, potentially his friends. And he would have had to trust in the God who revealed himself to him to be good. And God promises Abram several things. He says he'll make him into a great nation. He'll bless him. He'll make his name great. He'll be a blessing. And that this blessing would extend to all the nations of the world. Some of you may remember the Tower of Babel story in the Bible. If you don't know it, let me give you the short version. So there's a group of people. They want to make a great name for themselves. They want to make their name great. They build a tower up to the heavens. And God just says he's going to have none of it. He confuses the nations by giving them different languages. And they scatter. But here in the calling of Abraham, what God begins to do is undo Babylon. Right? Because while mankind was trying to make themselves great, God scatters them. But, but Abram is called and God promises him that he will make his name great and that he will be a blessing to all the nations. God begins to undo. And we see these two things, two reasons God calls Abraham come together. He calls him for relationship and he calls him for redemption. Which brings us to our second point, the God who covenants. The God who covenants. Turn with me to Genesis 15 now. Verses. We'll read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll drop down to 17. It says this, After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram continued, Look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord 
and he credited to him his righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? God replied, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid pieces opposite each other, but did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in the land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. Drop down to verse 17. And then when the sun had set, it was dark. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. God's faithfulness to the person that he called to himself is made so, so clear in this passage. God promises Abraham. He comes to him and says, I'm gonna be your shield. I want you to follow me. And, but Abraham, he's kind, of a, he's kind of a realist. And he's like, okay, God, I get that you make these promises. But he's like, God, I ain't got no kids. You promised to make me great, but there's no one save this slave that will be an heir to my family. Then God walks Abram outside. Abram, get out of your tent. Go look at the sky. And now this isn't like New York City, right? Where like light pollution, you can't see the stars very well. You kind of like, I can make out a faint star. No, this isn't like that. This is a clear sky. And what Abram can see is millions upon millions of stars. And God says, I'm gonna make you like that. And then we see Abram's response in Genesis 15. It says, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here we see that Abram, his response to God is one of faith. I'm sure Abram didn't understand. He's thinking, I'm an old dude and you're telling me I'm gonna have a kid. But he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In righteousness, at its most basic level, is right standing. Abraham believed God, and he had right standing before God. The God who calls us to himself is a God that we relate to on the basis of grace and through faith. Right standing with God doesn't come by what we do. It doesn't come by how well we obey his commands. It doesn't come by keeping a perfect list of rules. Right standing before God at its most basic level is believing in what he said and then resting in what he says. If you wanna relate to God, you don't relate to God by trying to achieve perfection. You don't relate to God by trying to be good. You relate to God on the basis of faith in his grace. That is how we relate to God. But the text doesn't stop there. God promises Abram not just a great name, but he promises him a land. And Abram asks, well, how am I gonna know if this is gonna happen? And then God makes a covenant. 
Now, we've talked briefly about covenants before. We saw the covenant with Adam that God made in the Garden of Eden. We saw the covenant with Noah. Remember that God promised he would never flood the earth again, so he makes the covenant. There's a rainbow placed in the sky. And here is one of the most important covenants in all of Scripture. And at its most basic level, a covenant is this. A covenant is a binding agreement between two people. Simple, right? A binding agreement between two people. The most familiar, what most of you are probably thinking of right now when I say covenant, the most familiar covenant to us is the covenant of marriage, right? In, in the covenant of marriage, two people stand next to each other. I've officiated a few weddings. They stand on equal footing, on equal ground, and they look each other in the face and they promise to be committed to each other till, you know, for better or worse, rich for death, do us part, Right? And all of that is covenant language, this intense commitment between two equal parties. What we have here is a different kind of covenant because we don't have two equal parties. You see, at the time of Abram, there were covenants made between rulers and leaders, and there would be like a strong man, a strong king, and he would make a a covenant with a lesser king, and that king was known as a vassal king. And they would enter into an agreement with one person being the king and the other person being the lesser king. And what they would do is they would agree to have a ceremony where they would commit to something, and that usually if if they violated their covenant together, it would mean death for the violator. It's fascinating, Don. Tell me how that's relevant here. Well, what we have in the book in Genesis 15 with these animals that Abram cuts in half is a covenant ceremony where God comes as the superior king and Abram as the lesser vassal. And Abram would have been super familiar by just common knowledge about what was going down. So he gets a, a cow, he gets a ram, he gets a goat, and he cuts them in half. And like, I don't know where your mind goes, but mine goes towards like, like cleanly sawed animals in half. This wouldn't have been that. Like this would have been a super gory, gross thing. You got guts and entrails spread all over the ground. It stinks. They got birds swooping down. You got to shoo them away. And, and what would happen is, is these kings, they would... They would pass through basically saying, if I violate my covenant, you can do to me what I did to these animals. And if we read the text, Abram falls into a sleep. And notice what happens? A smoking fire pot, that is a theophany, like a vision of God, passes through those animals but do you notice who does not? Abram. And what God is saying in this covenant, known as the covenant of grace, is that Abram, you can be sure that this will happen. You can be sure that that I'm gonna make your name great. You can be sure that you are gonna get a land is because I am promising to do this and I'm gonna require nothing from you. I am gonna do it all. This was a covenant not based on Abraham's perfect obedience, not based on performance, not based on piety. It was a covenant based upon the grace of God and God was guaranteeing that he would do it no matter 
what? And if you want to know how we're supposed to relate to God, we relate to God the same way as Abraham. It's on the basis of his grace. He comes to us, not expecting us to do things, but telling us that he will see it through and he asked us to have faith in him. And if you think, well, geez, Don, this is Abraham. He's like one of the fathers of the faith. Like, how can we compare to him? Well, friends, if you read like the chapters we had to pass over, and I would encourage you to do that on your own time today, you would see that Abram was a screw-up. He put his wife in tricky situations, in dangerous situations, and God had to rescue him out. He had um, a child with, with one of his slaves to try to take this God's commands into his own hands, and God rescues him from that too. He was human, and he was broken, just like you and I are. But at the end of the day, we relate to God on the basis of grace. Because the God who calls us at the beginning, he carries us to the end. God called Abraham, and God will carry him through to finish. Which leads to our last point, the God who confirms. We'll read Genesis 17. Starting in verse one, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty, live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here's my covenant with you. You'll become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. And this is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are supposed to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant. So God comes to Abram and sets up the most awkward of covenants in the Bible. And he gives Abram a new name, Abraham. And he tells Abram, hey, everyone in your house, this is how this covenant is gonna work. It's gonna be circumcised. And like, I think we gotta like place ourselves into the story. Can you imagine being like someone who worked for Abraham? You want me to what? But Abraham... He follows through. And I don't know why God chose Abraham. It certainly wasn't because he was a cut above the rest. Come on, work with me here, people. <laughs> but Abram, Abram goes through with it. And circumcision was a sign and a seal of the covenant that God had made. It was a sign and a seal of the covenant that God had made. You know, 
road signs, like this one here, they point to another reality, right? So if you're driving down the road, you see that Manchester Street downtown, exit 13. That is not the road, right? It's a sign pointing to something deeper, that if that road exists over here. And in the same way, circumcision, this covenant that God made with Abraham, pointed to another reality. It pointed to the fact that God, that they belong to God. It pointed to a fact that God made a promise to them. It pointed to reality much deeper than the circumcision. Circumcision points to a deeper truth. It is a sign. It points towards something else. Now, circumcision in this covenant is also a seal. Like if you were to get a letter from, a, from either somebody that has more time than I do and no children, they might do this. They might press that seal on there. Or football starting up, and when you, when you look around, you see that um, all of the players are wearing logos signifying who they belong to. So circumcision in this is a sign. It points to a deeper reality, and it is a seal. It also says that they belong to God, that they were God's people. And what they wore in their bodies pointed to something so much greater. It pointed to promises. And no matter what their waverings were, no matter what their wanderings, their doubts, or anything like that, these two things pointed them to, the circumcision pointed them to something so much greater that God made a promise and that he would see it through. If we fast forward to the New Testament, there are, there's another Thing mentioned in the Bible. We learn in Colossians 2 that, that God actually circumcises our hearts. He gives us new hearts, and then he gives us baptism as a sign and a seal of the covenant. Because what is baptism? Baptism is, is, is a sign. It points to something that you're, you have died with Christ and you're raised to new life. That Christ has died. It points to that deeper reality that Christ has died for you. And that and that whatever happens, no, no matter what happens, that can never change. It points to that reality that didn't even depend on you. Christ died. He didn't need you to do it. And then it also is a seal. Baptism marks us out as God's people. It points to something greater and that we are secure in what Christ has done. And while circumcision is no longer required for New Testament Christians, God encourages us towards baptism because it functions like circumcision. It's a sign and a seal of what God himself has done. And no matter what your waverings, friends, or your wanderings, you can look to your baptism. And remember, this isn't about what I did. This is about what has been done for me. Baptism doesn't save us. God does, and he holds us. God came to Abram for relationship, like we said, and redemption. God made this promise to Abraham that he would make nations come from him. He promised to bless all peoples. And then Jesus comes, a direct descendant of Abraham. And, and what happens? You and I, people from all nations, can have faith in Jesus Christ and believe that, that, that through Jesus, because of this promise, we are now brought into the promise made to Abram that was fulfilled through Christ. And man, if you read the story in the Old Testament, you'll see that like Israel, they were messed up. 
They were God's people, but they were messed up people. But you know what? Jesus came from them. And God, in spite of their imperfections, carried his plan through just as he promised. God is faithful to you in spite of your brokenness. What we discover in the God of the Bible is a God we can relate to because he reveals himself to us, he calls himself to us, and he invites us to trust in his grace, pure grace. And just like God alone passed through those dead animals, Christ alone died alone on a cross, right? It's basically saying to you and to me that if you believe in him, if you trust in him, he is gonna see you through. He is gonna carry you through. It doesn't matter, just like it didn't matter for Abraham. He, we're just called to believe and to follow and God will see the rest. He knows we're not perfect, but we're called to relate to him on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of our rights and our wrongs. One author says this. He says, the life of grace is not an effort on our part to achieve a goal we set ourselves. It is a continuously renewed attempt simply to believe that someone else has done all of the achieving that is needed and to live in relationship with that person, whether we achieve or not. If that doesn't seem like much to you, you're right, it isn't. And as a matter of fact, the life of grace is even less than that. It's not even our life at all. But the life of that someone else, namely Jesus, rising like a tide in the ruins of our death. God is calling us to a life of grace, a life where we relate to him and remember that we have nothing to offer but our sin. And he promises us life in him. We're just called to be swept up in that. Some of us in this room were tired because our relationship to God while we know it started by believing in his grace, it's quickly morphed into just feeling inadequate and insufficient and lonely and like God is far away. And friends, the invitation to a text like Abraham is to, to re-believe in the grace of God, to, to trust that God is, is big enough to hold you close to him in spite of your failures. It's, a, it's an invitation to come home to the God of the Bible and to place your faith in him. Some of us in this room are like, man, I don't even feel close to God. He feels so far away. I don't know what I've done to, to feel like this. And sometimes, friends, that's just the Christian life. And what you're called to, to look at is you're called to look at a cross and, and look at Jesus and know that in spite of your feelings, he can still hold on to you wherever you are right now. The God who calls us at the beginning carries us to the end.